Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode contains references to war and everything that goes with it. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 121, Lighting the Beacons. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara, on the rohe of Mueupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons, such as Jesse and Ruth. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Last time, we discussed the construction of the Wakatoa, war canoes, and had an interview with the team who brought Tada, the only known pre-European Māori sail, back to Aotearoa. Today, we will start to look at the process of how Māori went to war, Firstly, with how they prepared, and then go on the journey with them as they gather allies and begin to march. Let's start with how Māori trained for battle. We'll only talk about this a bit since we also covered this in the games episodes 75 to 78. So go have a listen to those if you want to hear more about training regimes, since they were heavily tied to the games young Māori played. Overall, there wasn't a specific training regime, other than doing haka, but there was always some baseline training on how to use weapons, and there was obviously some specific focus given to improving the skills of people who showed an aptitude for combat, such as Taroparaha becoming his uncle's kaihapi rako, so that he could watch and learn. It's possible that this kind of training was only for rangatira though, since the rank and file just used basic spears. Male relatives would often give at least a bit of training to their children from a young age, outside of the games and mock duels they oversaw. One example given is that a man would walk silently through the whare in the morning so as to not wake his grandson. 
Once he reached the spot where the Mokopuna was sleeping, he would slap him on the feet. This would be repeated until eventually the child grew to be more aware of his surroundings and would get up before his granddad could hit him. It isn't super clear what age this training stopped and when was considered appropriate for a young boy or man to go to battle for the first time. Best does say that children were taken on raids but didn't actually fight. Though this didn't happen all the time, and it seems to have depended on the region. Many different drills and exercises were employed to train up rangatahi in the ways of war, such as using poi to train the wrists to be flexible. One key skill that was taught was to keep an eye on the big toe and shoulder of the enemy as this would give tells on how they intended to attack, so that it could be countered or dodged correctly. Early European explorers also saw that a popular pastime for Māori was to see how well one could dodge spears being thrown at them, only being given a short stick to deflect them. Apparently, this was also used to settle disputes, but its main purpose seems to have been teaching battlefield skills to young men. You might recall a couple of episodes back that I said the hapu was the main military unit that went to war. Fano didn't wage war on each other, and iwi, as we've previously discussed, were kinda more akin to alliances than hard and fast groups. In saying that, hapu didn't always fight individually. They would sometimes join up with other hapu they had kinship with, or who were all underneath the same ariki, which in both cases usually aligned with who was in their iwi. Most hapu could put anywhere around 100 to 400 combatants in the field who were commanded by their rangatira. In terms of Western military units, this roughly translates to a large company or small battalion. Though of course, how many toa a hapu could provide went up or down depending on how big the hapu was. Such as one hapu in Napuhi who was said to be able to muster 1,000 soldiers on their own, roughly around the time that Cook arrived in 1769. Though... This particular estimate may be somewhat exaggerated, as it is from a couple hundred years later. It should also be noted that when a toa was formed, a hapu wouldn't send every able-bodied toa they had. Some were left behind to protect the kaina or pa, as well as to ensure that the work of the village still ran, and generally to lead in the absence of the rangatira. They may have also done this depending on how many were in the towa, because the actual number of individuals was possibly important. One source I read said that a hokofitu, 140, was a good number of men to have in a towa. It was a spiritually significant number, and so aligning yourself with it was seen as a good omen. However, Best posits that it is unlikely that a toa would realistically have exactly that number, 
So he surmises that a hokofitu was actually used to refer to any towa that had between 100 to 200 soldiers. As with most spiritual aspects of Māori culture, this also had a practical reason. In general, Māori were of the mind that it was better to have a smaller towa, rather than just sending out everyone that you have. And there are a number of examples of smaller forces beating bigger ones, most likely because having less people in a towa meant it could be better organised and more well-coordinated particularly given there was limited communication on the battlefield and no formal command structure, other than the rangatira that was leading them. And even then, that was pretty loose, as we'll come to see. The hapu was a good unit for fighting, because it meant that everyone within that unit knew each other, were related to each other, were following the same rangatira they were all familiar with, and generally... Each member had an emotional, if not economic, interest in keeping his comrades alive. The people they were fighting with were literally their friends and family. They would naturally fight harder, for longer, to keep those people alive. As well as perhaps some strategic advantages of fighting with people that you know well. You know how they communicate, you know how they fight, so you know what their strengths and weaknesses are, that you can bolster those strengths and cover those weaknesses. Another advantage was the fact that since Hapu could only field a few hundred toa, this would keep the force to a size that could be easily kept together and not get lost or split up. If the force was larger, this would require more coordination, and perhaps an organised command structure, which, again, Māori didn't have. As such, the Māori way of fighting was based around strategies that could be executed by relatively small numbers under the command of a single chief. Especially given a chief could only issue instructions within a certain radius, basically as far as he could be seen or heard. It's also important to remember that Māori soldiers weren't, well, soldiers. That wasn't their full-time job. They were farmers, crafters, fishermen, doctors, and all manner of other professions. If they were off to war, they weren't back home doing their normal jobs. And of course, if they never made it back home... That was more than just losing a tor. That was someone unable to help with the planting and harvesting. Someone whose skills were possibly valuable to the hapu. Someone who can't provide for their family. Although there was no formal conscription process, it was said that all Māori men were, quote, morally obliged, end quote, to fight when called upon by their leaders. As such, there wasn't a formal punishment for refusing the call, but it was well understood that your hapu would be pretty disappointed in you, and public humiliation can be a powerful motivator, especially given the Māori cultural focus on community. It was also expected that any issues between individuals, whether that be between fighting men or a man and his wife, be put aside for the common defence of the hapu. Nobody's petty squabbles would matter if they were all dead or had to leave their home. 
It wasn't just the men, though. Women and rangatahi were possibly a regular sight with armies, providing logistical support. If this is true, that would mean that extra pressure would be put on those left behind to keep things together. Because the ones who were the most healthy, and as such the ones who would normally do the bulk of the work, would be the ones sent on campaign. However, the sources do seem to disagree on this somewhat, saying that women didn't go on campaign at all, and only fought in dire situations, like when the enemy had breached the par. In saying that, there were some women who were excellent soldiers who were keen to fight, and Māori don't seem to have thought there was anything wrong with that. In fact, there are some stories that talk about military units exclusively made up of women. So, if multiple hapu joined together for a campaign, then each one would be led by their own rangatira, who would act more or less independently, in line with whatever strategy had been agreed. Well, most of the time. Larger towa made up of multiple hapu were harder to keep together, because each rangatira and the hapu they commanded would kinda do whatever they wanted, so the chiefs and the larger army needed to come to a consensus of what to do. Otherwise, the various hapu would just break off. This could result in attacks being a bit uncoordinated, or hapu attacking in step rather than all together, resulting in what should have been a straightforward victory becoming a defeat. On occasion, a great war leader may take command of an entire multi-hapu army if they had a lot of mana, or were known to be the conduit of a particular war god. But After the fighting was done, their power and control over the varying hapu would disappear or diminish as they all went back to their lives. Assuming you had managed to convince your own hapu to mobilise, which could be a feat in and of itself, the beginning of any military campaign would first involve convincing allies to come to your aid. You couldn't just light the beacons of Gondor and they would come running. Though, actually, that did sometimes happen. Signal fires on hills were used to summon allies. But you get what I mean. That was not something that happened all the time. That's not normally the way they went about it. Hapu were effectively nations unto themselves. And so, they would often need to be convinced to risk their people in battle. Usually, this involved a messenger bringing some sort of gift that had symbolism of war, such as a kākahu with a hole burnt through it, or sometimes it could be some, quote, inferior or repulsive food, end quote. The chief would then need to decide how they would respond, such as by allowing the cloak to be placed on them, or eating the food, both of which would indicate that they agreed to join the fight. An interesting part of this interaction was that sometimes the messenger wouldn't tell the chief who they would be fighting or why, just who had requested his help. Which seems a bit counterintuitive, 
Why would a rangatira go to war when he didn't even know who the target was, or what the target had done to be worthy of violence? Well, this was perhaps done as a precaution, because if the ally didn't agree to join, then without knowing who the target was, they wouldn't be able to go warn them what was going on. This wasn't always the case though, and sometimes allies were told who they would be fighting and why beforehand. A big part of seeking allies, and who a rangatira would choose as an ally, was around kinship. Essentially, you would want allies to be related to you, which would make them invested in your endeavours, and ideally, they wouldn't be related to your enemies. But that wasn't always possible, and so sometimes the loyalties of a potential ally might be in question if they were related to both sides. So it could be a bit of a diplomatic minefield trying to convince chiefs to help attack people that they were related to, and as such had a vested interest in as well. In one case that best describes, Tuhoi Rangatira and their towa were gathered and ready to march. But when they discovered who the target was, and that they were connected by marriage, they abandoned the chief who had called them together. As such, it was often favourable to tell allies as little as possible until events were already well in motion. It was rare for a rangatira themselves to go make a personal visit to convince another chief to join them, but it may happen if times were desperate, or if the chief had refused the summons already by messenger. Some Europeans do give accounts of what this appeal may involve, but with no real specific examples, so they may actually just be full of it. But if they are in any way true, the general gist seems to be for the chief seeking help to show off their strength, courage, and other positive martial attributes, perhaps by consuming a lizard, which had heavy symbolism of overcoming fear. In essence, they weren't trying to seem submissive or beg for help, which you might see in other cultures. Instead, they were trying to show that they had the strength and skill to win the battle, and that joining them would increase their mana. These visits to seek aid, regardless of whether they involved the rangatira or not, would also involve a feast to talk the situation over and negotiate the various aspects of the campaign. How many toa would they send? Who would they send? How would the attack be conducted? How would they split the loot? That kind of thing. As well as the more mundane but extremely important aspects of logistics and food, since extra crops might need to be planted in advance if the campaign was over a long distance. On that note, Another important aspect of mobilisation and seeking allies was that the lead rangatira had to feed them all. If a chief called for allies and they arrived at his pa or kaina, it was his responsibility to gather the kai and feed them all. 
This could be difficult to do though, because you were never sure who would ultimately heed the call, and thus how much food you had to gather up. So generally, rangatira would try to gather more than they thought would be needed, just in case. This could really deplete a hapu's food stores if they had to dip into them rather than gather or hunt what they needed. Which was obviously a bit of a problem for the survival of the hapu, as well as their economic prosperity, given food was basically a form of currency. This requirement to feed everyone, because, you know, otherwise they starve, is another pretty big factor in why towa didn't get really big very often. Quite simply, it's really fucking hard feeding a large group of people. Despite this manakitanga being expected, it wasn't always provided, either on purpose or accidentally, which was a pretty big insult. In one case, a chief called Paiko was called upon to join a campaign, and his allies had an abundance of food, but didn't share it with him and his men. So, when the towa was lined up and they charged towards the enemy, Paiko held up his weapon to indicate to his men not to attack, and instead leave the battle. He apparently said, quote, In war, Paiko is called upon, but when food is ready, he is not called. End quote. In some cases, not providing food for allies could result in those same allies turning against them and attacking. Or when battle had commenced and everyone was in the thick of it, the allies would retreat in an orderly fashion to let the rest of the towa be killed as Utu. Or it could just be that the slighted allies would rush in front of everyone else during battle to get in there first and just kinda annoy the rest of the towa. I think it's important to keep in mind the reason why this was seen as such an insult. Remember that the only ways to get around the motu at the time was either by waka or by foot. It was a huge endeavour to gather up a bunch of people, give them weapons, and march them to an agreed meeting point. Especially when those people could be better served doing their normal jobs at home. Of course it's only fair that the person who asked you to be here provide the food. You're providing the muscle and sacrificing things back home. Once the hapu gathered together in a single place, usually a kaina that was convenient for all of them, and once anyone who was unaware of the target was thus informed, they would make a plan as to where they would go, how they would attack, and all of that. As part of this, there would be rousing speeches, alluding to famous ancestors, or the more mythical period, to really get everyone juiced. There would also be some singing to the same effect. Before leaving on campaign, Toa may be subject to a kind of baptism in the Waitapu to bring them under the jurisdiction of Tumatoinga, slash bring them into his house. Other rites, like the Tira Ora, were meant to remove any evil acts or thoughts from them, and ensure they didn't break tapu on the campaign, which was very important. 
There were lots of these kind of rituals that all served different but related purposes. We've talked a bit about the sort of people who were sent on campaign, but not every Toa was made equal. In fact, Toa wasn't just the generic word for warrior or soldier. It was given to men of extraordinary military skill. Those who achieved great feats, proved immense courage, and survived many bloody battles. Best says that, as a general rule, an ariki or rangatira would need to be a toa if he was to assume command on the battlefield. Part of the idea being that the large mana a chief had would make them brave and kinda inherently good at war. The other part, of course, was the people you are leading would trust and respect you a lot more if you had been proven in battle. Of course, the lead rangatira of any given hapu was normally a firstborn male from a noble family. But not everyone has a military mind, or is capable of leading a campaign at any given time. Perhaps they're injured. So it wasn't uncommon for the rangatira's younger brother, or perhaps someone from a less senior line of the hapu, to lead a toa. Toa were the kinda mid-rank of soldiers in the loose Māori military hierarchy. Atia Toa were the rangatahi who hadn't seen combat yet, or perhaps only one battle. Arero Fero were the majority of soldiers, people who were blooded, but perhaps hadn't really done any great feats of courage or survived lots of battles. Fero also means red, so that probably has something to do with it as well. Both of these groups could perhaps be seen as being below Toa in the hierarchy, whereas Ika Afero were certainly above them, referring to an old warrior who has fought many battles. In fact, it was the Ika Afero who taught the young men how to fight in Parafakawai, the practice of training with weapons. They would often be put into duels with each other, with real weapons that were wrapped in old garments, so as not to harm each other too much. The older warriors would go through various attacks, guards, thrusts, parries and feints with the younger men to teach them the skills they needed. They would also go through practice haka to ensure they knew what they were doing when the time came on the battlefield. The older men would walk up and down the lines, watching everyone to ensure they were doing things properly, and pull up anyone who wasn't. A young, unblooded man would usually tend to be quite careful to not be out of line while on campaign, lest he break tapu. When he killed his first man, he would take some of the enemy's hair and give it to a tohonga, who would speak a karakia to strengthen the rangatahi and give him courage. He would also present the tohonga with his first piece of loot, no matter if that's a weapon, cloak, or some other item. After the discussions, training, and rituals, the army went on the move. When marching, an army rarely used stealth or haste. 
there often wasn't a need or desire to stop the enemy from finding out that they were on their way, or to get to their destination before they found out. In fact, it was common for the enemy to hear about the approaching army with enough time to prepare a defence or counterattack. This information was usually relayed by those who were related to both sides, meaning they were privy to the war hui and also had an interest in warning the enemy. This was normal, and not in any way seen as a betrayal. It was very well accepted, in part because it was a two-way street. As much as information would be leaked to the enemy, information from the enemy would be leaked to you. Songs were also sung while the towa was travelling, sung in a similar manner to sea shanties, where there was one person leading it and everyone else sung the chorus. Or sometimes it was more of a call and response type thing. Since the army is on the move, they would be needing more kai to keep them going. As they say, an army marches on its stomach. So naturally, a towa needed to be fed as they went to battle. The struggle was that without horses or carts, the towa was limited to what a person could carry. And so, they needed to find ways to more efficiently carry food, or to obtain it while away from home, since setting up supply lines also wasn't an option. Aruhe was a favoured food to take to battle, Probably because it was abundant, could be foraged easily, and kept well. They would be pounded, made into quote-unquote cakes, and then cooked over a fire. The people transporting the food around were usually not the toa or rangatira, but slaves, people of lower birth, or women and children who were accompanying the toa. Again, the toa were now under two, and as such, were very tapu. If the mission was too tapu for anyone else but the soldiers to go, then they would carry the food in their left hand, which was apparently the noa side of the body. Although carrying food with them was an option, most of the time a towa would forage for their food, steal it from their enemies, or the enemies would sometimes become the food. The exception to this was if the towa was expected to be fed when they got there, such as if they were meeting another hapu close to the site of battle, and were expecting to be fed by their allies. In this case, the towa would be told, quote, hiokaka, end quote, meaning they should only carry as much as the kaka can carry in its claws. I doubt this was actually literal, it was probably a metaphor to mean travel light. Given the towa were feeding off the land by foraging or raiding, this meant campaigning season was when food was most abundant in the land. Usually this was late spring through summer and into early autumn, which is about November to April. Aruhe became most abundant in November, berries and fish were ripe and abundant in the summer months of December, January and February, and kumara became ripe for harvest around March and April. October to November is generally when crops were planted, so it was important to get that done before they marched to war. 
However, this timing differed slightly depending on the region. For some hapu, the star Rehua indicated when crops were to be planted. As such, the Rehua star was known as Rehua Kaitangata, Rehua the Man Destroyer, on account of the fact that it was a preliminary sign of the campaigning season. For context, the star Rehua is sometimes identified as Antares, Betelgeuse, or Sirius, depending on who you ask. In general, foraging was low risk, but had a high possibility that you wouldn't find enough food. Whereas stealing from the enemy, who would usually keep their harvested crops in a pa or other fortified location, was high risk, but if successful, would lead to a bounty of food that could feed the entire army. With the mention of Kaitangata, let's address that ever-present elephant. Cannibalism did sometimes happen in a couple of specific circumstances, usually when the towa was desperate and unable to find food, or it occurred after a victory. This served a dual purpose, a practical one of feeding the towa when they were in enemy territory, and a spiritual one of defiling the kin of the enemy, which may have repercussions for their wairua. Other than that, I wasn't really able to find much evidence of cannibalism occurring during war. So, although we can't say it never happened on campaign, I get the impression that it wasn't something that happened all the time. Overall, campaigns were generally pretty short, with most of the time spent travelling to and from the place of battle. Ambushes were the tactic of choice, which meant battles were pretty quick, regardless of whether it was an open battle or a siege. It should be noted that campaigns weren't exactly long, drawn-out efforts to take multiple par, with the objective of getting the enemy to surrender. Generally, a campaign was more around a singular objective, Take a particular par, capture or kill a certain person, take resources, etc. Campaigns revolved around Utu, and Hapu may have extended hostilities over generations, because each side wanted to get Utu for the last time their rival got Utu, who in turn did that because they wanted Utu for the last time the other side got Utu from them, and so on. However, this isn't exactly a war as such. It doesn't have a defined start or end. There are no specific end goals that could conclude it. And even with these intergenerational conflicts, although they would be hostile to one another, acts of violence and military campaigns didn't happen all the time. There could be long periods of relative peace between two hapu that fucking hated each other. At least until something happened for it to boil over into violence, which would be resolved through marriages, allowing the peace to resume. In rare cases, assimilating the entire hapu into the winning side. If one hapu got absolutely stomped in a conflict, Sometimes they would disappear into the bush or the mountains, retreating to a safe place where they would be hard to find. There, they would be whakatuputangata, quote, causing men to grow, end quote. 
meaning they would try to build up their population for a generation or two before returning back to the world and going to claim Utu. As we've talked about in the past, this may have resulted in stories of Patupairehe stealing people when they go out into the bush. Next time, we will continue walking the path of Tumatoinga, looking at the strategies Māori employed and how they engaged in battle. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haritu atu, okitu mai. See you next time.